Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 51 of the Simple Life Podcast. Uh, I am again, unfortunately, by myself in this little project of mine as we approach our anniversary, our first year of broadcasting once a week, every week for the past year. Uh, wish Marcus some love wherever he is, whatever he's up to. Um, so yeah, you've just got me for the uh, the foreseeable folks. Uh, do strap in and enjoy this ride as we move into year two from next week, or from the week after next, really. Um, tonight's guest who joins me um, in this penultimate episode of our first year of podcasting is um, uh, who has been campaigning for his son, Charlie, who has refractory epilepsy to have access to cannabis on the NHS. Uh, during this fight, he found that there'd be uh, a massive gap in the education for carers, patients, and families. This led to him joining with Hannah Deacon, another previous podcast guest, which you'll find a link below, uh, another champion and advocate in the UK, to form MedCan Support, an educational hub for parents and carers looking to learn more about cannabis and how it could potentially help their children. He was also recently voted the patient's representative of the CIC, the new Cannabis Industry Council in the UK, where he also sits as an executive on their board. He is Matt Hughes. How are you doing, brother? Hi, mate. Yeah, good, thanks, you. I'm very good. I'm glad I managed to get that mouthful of an introduction out of the way there. <laughs> I'm, I'm slowly realising I think I've got a caffeine addiction. So when I'm, I'm preparing for these podcasts, I'm, I make t- two or three of these very large cups of coffee. And I go and then read that sentence and my brain goes, woof, and tries to go at 100 miles an hour. I think, I think we got that out. I think we got that out. <laughs> Sounded good. Yeah, sweet. So again, thank you for, for joining us this evening. Um, for the people at home that don't really sort of know anything uh, about yourself, could you give us a bit of a brief introduction? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so basically, my son Charlie uh, was diagnosed with a rare form of epilepsy called infantile spasms. Uh, he was 10 weeks old, um, so Charlie's our, our first as well. And yeah, it was, to begin with, it was... You know, well, he presented, it, it was almost like colic. So the seizures he was having presented like he was having some sort of stomach discomfort. And it's easily diagnosed by GPs as well. It's a lot of um, cases with infantile spasms that they're sent away saying it's just colic or some sort of severe stomach ache. And um, it continued and it's always around sleep and feeding. Um, and yeah, it seems to get worse. So long story short, we took a video, went to the GP, had an emergency appointment, and he sent us straight up to the hospital. At that point, Charlie then went into status and was having, um, they come in clusters, and he's having seizure after seizure after seizure in this, you know, in clusters. And he's put on um, rescue medications and um, to try and get it all under control. There's that point that the doctors then basically turned around and said, Charlie has epilepsy. Um, and both me and my wife, Addie, were just a bit like, okay, right, well, that's, that's nothing major. You know, it's, I've got my niece and nephew, both type 1 diabetic. So I kind of treated it like that it was my initial reaction. This isn't nothing major. Some tablets and he'll be on his way and absolutely, you know, he'll be absolutely fine. And he kind of had that complete trust in the doctors as well in what they were doing and, you know, they're the experts. And, yeah, he was put on Vigabatron, which is... Um, was the only primary medication for that form of epilepsy and on an adult dosage of steroids as well. Mm-hmm. And I emphasize adult because he was only 10 weeks old. So obviously his body's developing, his liver, his kidneys, etc., um, And his brain is still developing as well. So um, yeah, he was seizure free for the first three months. And then, yeah, after that, we started weaning off the medications because obviously we can't be on these for long, long term because of the dosages. 
and then he relapsed. And basically, again, long story short, we never regained control. So it is then a cycle of trying you know, various different antiepileptics. Um, he got to a point where he was on four antiepileptics, still having up to 120 seizures a day. And quality of life wasn't there. You know, we went on to, went to a walking therapy session uh, to try and aid him with, with his walking and his balance, et cetera. And they put him into this um, contraption, this like walking frame. And he's just head down, looked miserable as hell. Um, and yeah, he just wasn't functioning. He was just wasn't with it. It's just so lethargic and just see on his face, he was miserable, absolutely miserable. And it was just heartbreaking for me now as well to see him like that. Yeah. And then we kind of, you know, we got to a point and the doctors basically said, we tried all the medications. We tried the ketogenic diet that had no impact whatsoever. And at that point, we kind of, you know, the doctor said to us that there's, there's nothing more at this point we can do for him. Um, he's just going to have to kind of live with it. You know, maybe things will change in the future, which was devastating because we always had that kind of hope. Um, so Charlie's underlying cause is unknown. So science doesn't yet know. It's had all the genetic tests, uh, tests, is that everything? And it's all come back saying he's a normal kid. There's nothing wrong. Um, so science isn't yet far enough advanced to kind of understand what's going on to cause his epilepsy. And with that diagnosis, though, the prognosis is actually quite good, bizarrely. Um, but in our instance, you know, he's, we've never been able to get the seizures under control. So, yeah, I then started researching and just trying to, you know, we're looking around the world for alternatives. So we started looking at HBOT therapy, which is um, hydrobar hydrobaric chamber therapy so it's basically in the chamber a bit like um the bends when you go into chamber and high oxygen um looking at other various treatments but one that kept cropping up was cannabis and at that point uh all i knew about cannabis was my teens and my young you know early 20s where you know i was using it recreationally and you know had some very good times um with the lads but yeah it was um that's all i knew about cannabis and i was like nah this isn't that's not going to treat you know, this isn't going to help Charlie, not this severe epilepsy. But the more I started looking into it and researching, and there's that point I saw Hannah on TV and I reached out to Tanine as well, who lives not far from me. Um, so Tanine Montgomery is another, I'm not sure if she's been on this podcast, but yeah, we've had her on yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah she's a, uh, yeah, brilliant. Um, and she's another mum with uh, Indies got Gervais syndrome. So I reached out to her and, you know, started talking to Hannah. And I was like, okay, right, there's something in this. You know, these other parents in a similar situation are, are finding cannabis really helpful. So that for us brought renewed hope. And we're like, okay, maybe there is something out there that could help. Um, but again, it's cautious. There was that maybe, you know, this isn't definite. We tried so many other medications that haven't worked. Um, so yeah, we then joined End Our Pain campaign. And at that point, we hadn't tried cannabis, but we wanted that, the option to try it. So that, that was our fight, was we wanted to be able to, to try this. But we then started on a CBD oil, Charlotte's Web, which again was a, a renowned brand for, for epilepsy in children, for obvious reasons. And for us, there was a little bit of, um, oh, sorry, actually go back, we tried Hades Hope first, um, which is a, a brand in Colorado. And that had no impact at all, except he seemed to be a little bit more alert and a little bit more awake. Um, we then tried Charlotte's Web. And again, seizure control wasn't really there. Was, we didn't really see anything significant. But he, he was a lot more alert and more awake and started to 
come alive, if that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Then um, through Endow Pain, we then uh, got a prescription, private prescription for Bedrolite and Bedica. Uh, this was in May um, 2019. And then, um, yeah, we as we slowly weaned up, or sorry, as we increased the dosage, it was about two months in and, you know, Charlie had come alive. It was literally like all this, he wasn't lethargic anymore. He was really happy. He's giggling. Um, he's aware of his surroundings. He's interacting with people in his own way. Again, he's, he's severely disabled. He has global development today. But in his own way, he was interacting with the world. And for the first time at that point, we probably, that was the first time we saw Charlie's personality because obviously he is a baby and, because of all the medications that he's on, all we saw was this sad little boy, you know, just miserable and seizing. But at this point, we really saw his personality and his cheekiness, and, you know, it was amazing to see. And there's, there's just one weekend that, again, I'll never forget, we'd got to late afternoon, and he hadn't had a seizure, nothing at all. And for that whole day, he was seizure-free, which for us was a miracle. It was like, bloody hell, this is, you know, this is something special. The following day, he did start to... You know, he went back to having seizures. Um, but again, they're significantly reduced. So over the two years that we've been using uh, prescribed cannabis, you know, it's been a consistent 85% reduction, but it's that quality of life as well. So I kind of always weigh it up as in the Vigabatron that Charlie's prescribed. The side, a potential side effect of that is tunnel vision. So there's always, it's weighing up seizure control, quality of life and side effects. And with cannabis, Yes, there's this kind of fear of THC in the developing brain, which as a parent, when you're choosing medications, yes, it's, you know, scientifically, we don't know potentially, but in my mind, the dosage is so low and the quality of life that's brought and the seizure control that's brought, it's a risk well worth taking in comparison to other antiepileptics. Um, so yeah, we then also uh, had a legal challenge against the National Institute of Healthcare and Excellence, NICE. That came about, so Hannah Deacon, um, at a drug science event, she got chatting with the QC and he said, you know, I feel there could be a legal challenge here. And coincidentally, at the same time, myself and my wife, Ali, were in conversation with um, friends who are in the legal world and they introduced us to the same QC. And so we kind of all teamed up together and, um, yeah, we started the legal challenge against NICE. Now, the initial challenge was to um, bring about change in the guidance because the guidance is so restrictive. But I think all of us were a little bit naive to you know how hard that would actually be. Um, and we learned a huge amount about legislation around cannabis and or prescribed cannabis and all the complexities behind the scenes. Um, but what that did bring about after over a year and a half of like fighting, et cetera, um, was a new clarification to prescribing, um, which, which came out actually nice done that before we even got to court. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, that's cool. And, and actually changing the guidance with, you know, our legal team felt that we just didn't have enough there and that potentially that could be thrown out of court. Mm-hmm. So we kind of had to settle with this in between, which is a clarification. Um, yeah, and then I'm probably waffling a little bit here now, but um, no, you covered yeah. it wonderfully. <laughs> so yeah, we then um, uh, you know me and Hannah were just chatting, and we kind of felt both of us were being contacted by families individually, 
And we said, you know, us as parents, when we started researching and looking at, at cannabis for epilepsy, we were, you know, the amount of misinformation and looking, you know, you're going to Canada, America, and all this information is all over the internet. And you don't know what's, what's correct, what's not right, and information about cannabis itself as well. And we really felt a central hub in the UK was missing. Um, so that's how MedCan was formed. We also brought Caddy Seaman in, who I know you know very well. So she's um, she's an executive on the team as well and director, and um, she brings the scientific side, the grow side, the you know the cannabis expertise. And yeah, so MedCan was formed, and you know I started reaching out to clinicians in because there's no one in, really at that point in the UK that I could reach out to that other than obviously Mike Barnes, but. I wanted to speak with clinicians that have been prescribing for children for many, many years that had experience in not just epilepsy, but pediatric cancers and um, ADHD and um, autism. So Bonnie Goldstein stood out straight away. And I reached out to her and straight away she was like, yep, yeah, what can I do? How can I help? Um, so we had our first webinar. Um, and yeah, that was amazing. And then we just rolled with that and started speaking with more clinicians abroad and just getting parents involved and having you know, get them to ask questions. And all of this is available on the website. Um, yeah, and it's just moved from there, just, you know, continued it and trying to bring as much education, as much support, advocacy, but in a way that relates to families. You know, families like ours, we don't have much time with, you know, you do spend a lot of time obviously looking after your child. So we're trying to do it in a simplified way. We don't want to get too technical. Um, but yeah, just trying to help. And, and then the side of that as well is, it's actually looking at the wider impact um, and how potentially cannabis could help with that. So siblings, you know, struggling with anxiety, depression, mum and dad struggling with, you know, PTSD, ex ex sorry, anxiety, depression, and just general mental health. Um, mm -hmm. So I really feel that there's a wider, looking at the whole family, not just the, the particular child that's suffering with, um, epilepsy or whatever it may be mm. so yeah it's just that's kind of what we're trying to do at the moment yeah. um and then obviously the cannabis industry council was formed uh by professor mike barnes um his chair and yeah i felt you know basically they wanted a patient or patient groups to be involved and to be in the industry where they are patient focused to be having patients involved so medcan from a pediatric perspective kind of um fitted fitted in there, uh, we felt it did, or does, shall we? Um, but then what was kind of obvious was as the executive board was being put together, that patients weren't within that exec board. So we kind of said, look, this isn't, a patient should be having a voice. Um, and yeah, at that point, a few of us put ourselves forward and I was voted in. So um, yeah, it's trying to sit on the board and just, you know, they are, from what I've seen so far, really patient focused and, mm. you know, which is good to see. Um, but yeah, there's still a huge amount of work to be done. Yeah. I've got a lot of respect for, for what you guys are doing with MedCan support, because I appreciate exactly what you said there, that it's about helping the whole family. It's about helping that whole unit. It's, you can start to stabilize lives. You start to stabilize conditions and you start to really give them that opportunity to, rebuild what a chronic disability disabling illness is, is caused within their family unit and mm. i think that yeah for the fact that you can advocate and speak in those uh and take that stance i think is really important because too often i've, I've had uh, parents on here who've had 
kids in similar positions and they are just so burnt out. They are so struggling mm-hmm. with, with the, the day-to-day life that they find themselves forced to live because of various legislations and restrictions. And to, to know there is a service out there that can also say to them that, yeah, we, we've sorted out the seizures, seizures in your son or your daughter, but have you thought about your mental health? Have you thought about how your road to recovery? And I think that's a very important um, step to, to take within that holistic approach for the whole family. Yeah, definitely. I think also from my perspective, I'm one of probably only two, three fathers that are active in in the epilepsy world and in the cannabis sector as well. Um, so for me, you know, men's mental health is quite a big thing. Um, earlier this or not like this year, last year, I lost my brother-in-law. He committed suicide. Um, so again, that's something personal to me that I feel should be we should be able to talk about it. And you know, that's kind of a little bit that I'm trying to do as well is from a, a male perspective is to talk more about mental health and anxiety. And as a father to a disabled child, you know, men don't talk um, at all <laughs> really about their mental health. But I, you know, in the, in the disability world, I rarely ever speak to any other fathers. Um, so yeah, it's something that I, my, me, myself, you know, I'd like to try and push that agenda a little bit as well. Yeah. I think even just being uh, an open advocate in your position helps to do that. Because again, I've spoken on stages around the country and had people on as guests and been on various platforms with the mothers of sick children. But as you said, there is more more often than not, there is the father figure still in the um, in the scene, as it were. But it's almost like they have to take the quiet strength. It's that classic man masculine thing of no, you just be there as the rock. The women are allowed to. I'm not saying this deliberately. I'm, I'm taking it as a hyperbole, but bitch and moan, you know, what I mean, and invent and get it out there. And then the, I feel there's been a co option by the, I call it the medical cannabis industrial complex of mothers to then make perfect advocates and maybe be misguided in certain directions. Um, and I think that what you said before about the, the suicide aspect of men not talking, yeah, the statistics in the UK are disgusting. It's 84 men a week. I mean, I lost my uh, my father to suicide when I was, what, 18, 19 months old. Um, I lost one of my best friends when I was a teenager um, and lost subsequent friends from pubs and, and you know, various scenes mm. and communities I've been part of. And yeah, there's still not this conversation going on. And I think to then be able to champion that within the family unit is a very bold thing to do because you're then tackling a very old, not stigma, but um, like almost myth of what family is. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're then really challenging that. And I think even just by your presence of you being able to advocate and speak from your position will in some way allow those other men the opportunity to, if not publicly, quietly, privately speak about their troubles. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah. So from, from my perspective, it's disability, you know, uh, fathers dealing with disabilities. Um, but yeah, it's, I say it's a strain on the whole family. And, you know, since I've been in this world, I've seen so many relationships break down, um, you know, family split up, mum, dad split up, et cetera. So it does have a huge impact um, and siblings, you know, Charlie obviously doesn't have any, but I spoke to so many families where, you know, the brother and sister are just really suffering with their mental health, which is impacting their schooling. So yeah, it's just trying to talk about all of these different issues and other factors um, and not just um, pediatric epilepsy. Um, again, I'd, we'd really like to start talking about pediatric cancer um, so again, it's it's a bit of a sensitive subject in the UK, especially around cannabis. 
and yeah. no one's really approached it. We have in adults, but it's never really been spoken about in pediatrics. So that's something that we're now looking to, you know, approach and start talking about and, you know, getting it out there. And But it's, get, it's how we do that um, sensitively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cancer is a very contentious issue in the UK, given, I suppose, <clears throat> well, the Cancer Act, for one thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the, the general response of society versus the response of the authorities and the establishment. If you talk to the average punter on the street, what they'll say cannabis does for cancer versus what the average academic will say. And there is this juxtaposition between the data that is created within um, academia and scientific study versus the lived experience and the anecdotes of getting to be tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And so, yeah, imagine then putting the the added thing of once somebody think of the children sensationalism on top of it, I can imagine, yeah, that's that's quite an uphill slug you guys have got there. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. So, yeah, yeah. We'll try and navigate it somehow. Have you got other conditions in mind that, that could potentially be um, sort of helped by, um, I love what you said before, it's, it's a term I've been trying to remind myself to use more rather than just air-quoting medical cannabis, of going um, prescribed cannabis. So are there other things that Med kind of looking at at the minute for prescribed cannabis is used to be used in other pediatric illnesses or conditions? Uh, I've got ideas around potentially mental health, but again, it's, are we, is the UK at a point already for clinicians, given that we've got no clinicians prescribing for epilepsy? Mm-hmm. Are we ready to be prescribing for paediatrics for mental health? So maybe that's questions we could be asking clinicians prescribing for adults, but it's, um, yeah, it's, that's probably as far as at the minute, as I say, it's, it's really tricky trying to, like the UK only has one neurologist prescribing for epilepsy. Um, so that's a massive issue that we need to be tackling at the moment. Um, so there were two neurologists and one's just retired. So Dr. Martinez, who was our, um, who's Charlie's neurologist from day one, privately prescribing cannabis. Um, yeah, she's just retired. So that now only now leaves Dr. Barry at Sapphire Clinics. So given, you know, the... Woof. Sorry, I've just given that a quick Google as you were chatting. That's uh, from Epilepsy Society. There's around 60,000 children diagnosed with uh, epilepsy. Yeah, there's 20,000, um, it's approximately a third that are refractory. So out of them 60,000, so yeah, 20,000 or approximately 20,000 are resistant. One to, doctor. And one doctor in the UK prescribing medical cannabis. So that then leaves parents left to um, obviously CBD products and also recreational, um, you know, going, finding routes, various different routes. Um through illicit markets. So again, this is where Medcan is trying to support everyone. This, yes, it's Alphi or our ethos is prescription cannabis. And we feel that these children, because their conditions are so complex and they are always going to have clinical intervention, that in our, in our view and in our experience, it should be coming from a neurologist or pediatric consultant and prescribed through that, that way. But um, we're there also to support those families that don't have, you know, at the moment that isn't an option for the vast majority. There's only a minority that are prescribed Mm -hmm. and the neurologist at the moment, he's part-time. He's also NHS, but can't prescribe on the NHS. So um, yeah, it's, that's a massive thing that we really need to concentrate at the moment. That's, that's a major block. Um, And then things later on, the ideas and 
exploring other conditions, I think we'll have to look at further down the line. Um, but yeah, that's a major, a major thing we need to tackle. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not just MedCan, it's NCCS, it's other organisations as well, End Our Pain, um, and just various different families individually trying to tackle it. Um, because, yeah, it's having a major impact. You know, this, I posted today um, on the MedCan Instagram, uh, a family contacted us and kind of told me a story. And they've tried absolutely everything. Um, surgery is, you know, and the child's still having seizures every single day. And they are desperate to try medical cannabis. Um, they're too scared to go down the illicit route or, you know, the CPULs they want, you know, want it under um, a clinician's, you know, uh, prescribed basically. Yeah. And they can't get it, you know, they can't afford it and access just isn't there. Mm -hmm. This is where my little anarchist brain kicks in and goes, <laughs> if, if only there was a resource that we could sell that grows from basically nothing, requires very minimum input, but gives us maximum value in return when we sell it that we could use to fund this. And it's only if there was millions of consumers of this product that would be willing to pay for that to offset those costs. It's, <laughs> it's a frustrating system to me in that... We've kind of, against why I appreciate and very much respect you for, the, for your terminology this evening for using prescribed cannabis, that my issue is that the creation of fortification of medical cannabis as a term negates cannabis. It says that cannabis isn't medical and can't do these things, whereas mm. the plant doesn't really care. If we're calling it hemp, if we're calling it marijuana, if we're calling it skunk or ganja, or it doesn't care about even its profile. It's just going to grow, and it can be used and have a benefit kind of regardless it's about the profiles of the cannabinoids and the terpenes and the sequestered mm -hmm. terpenes and all of that synergy and co-crystallization and all the fun little uh, chemistry that Callie likes to to go on about um that then breaks down the new the nuance of it but if then we're finding what we're finding in the medical profession to then be true and that translate over to all cannabis if we just produced to the quality we're producing the medical cannabis but allowed those millions of people to buy it you'd offset all of the research development costs. You'd offset all of the prescription costs. We could offset the whole thing. I mean, my grand idea has always been that the NHS should grow and sell weed. Uh, yeah, well, there was talk about that. Um, yeah, as long as you've got the decent growers that know what they're doing, then, um, yeah, that could work, yeah. It's, yeah. I guess with the, the NHS is their mindset around isolates. That's something that we really don't. Um, isolates have their place. They're really good for research and understanding how individual phytocannabinoids work within the body and the science with regards to that. But what we're seeing in children is that whole plant is more effective than isolate based. You know, obviously we've got epidiolects, but you know, in CBD world, there's various different isolates as well. Um, so our fight has always been for whole plant, you know, just everything that's in there. Mm -hmm. uh prescribes under clinical guidance that's what that's what we want we're not asking for anything spectacular um so yeah that's and again that's what you're saying earlier is about i don't see when we talk about cannabis in the medical world i just see it as the chem of our profiles the makeup of that individual you know that individual medicine and how that works within us and what's best to so before we went on air is we're chatting about personalized medicines and I was saying about um figabatrin which is a drug that Charlie well it's the only anti-epileptic Charlie really really responded to and it was only when I started researching really in depth cannabis and 
you know, how it works with the endocannabinoid system and how that works, particularly in epilepsy, that I then started to research the pharmaceuticals because I've never done that. I just took it, you know, there's millions been spent on RCTs and all the rest of it. But you kind of always take, you know, it's almost like gospel when the doctor tells you or prescribes it and you just accept it and you don't judge it. You don't, you know, you don't challenge it. And when doctors and everyone else started challenging cannabis and I'm researching and I'm advocating it, saying actually there is something in this and there's science behind it. I was like, why aren't I doing the same to pharmaceuticals? So then that's when I started researching, you know, the anti-epileptic strategy being prescribed and the method of action behind them. And it's then I kind of stumbled across Bigger Batron and the method of action and how that works on GABA in the brain. So GABA is a, a chemical in the brain that's produced and high levels of that has shown, it's, it's basically the brain's natural way of reducing seizures. And I then started researching, obviously looking at the oils that Charlie's prescribed, looking at the phytocannabinoid profile of them. We don't know what terpenes are in there at the moment, sadly. But um, CBDV was, is in high con concentration. And I started looking at, you know, the method of action to that. And that works, and basically, long story short, that works on GABA as well. So I was like, actually, is there something where we need to be looking at the prescribed medicines, and particularly if there's some that appear to be effective, can, can, how does that translate to cannabis and the individual phytocannabinoids? Could we be looking at, you know, say if your child was, you know, worked or responded really well to a particular anti-epileptic, but it's no longer effective, could we be looking at that, the synergy between the two, you know, potential, um, not interactions, but, you know, potential methods of actions or different mm -hmm. methods of actions, if that makes sense. No, it does exactly that. It's You can't really plot the road ahead of you unless you know the road behind you in a lot of ways. And so... It, when we can't go into this noise, uh, believing that cannabis is a panacea and it's this magic plan that just does all of this, this, this shit. We obviously understand, yeah, the, the spectrum of the, and the diversity of the expression of the plant. And there is this limitation at the minute with only prescribing in the UK and a lot of other places based on cannabinoid profiles only. There is obviously interaction with terpenes and sort of the idea of co-crystallization of them, um, growing the developing and synergizing together changes sort of the uh, efficacy but it also changes the way in which it affects uh, in the body so it's always been odds to me that traditional medicine isn't eager to get all over this because at the minute the data creation that's coming from prescribed patients and others isn't circulating back into traditional medicine so you've then got the specialists of all these conditions being told by thousands of people that their condition is getting better from them consuming cannabis but they have no idea of the mechanisms, they have no even real interest in understanding it because it's it's not within their remit, it's not within their field. The private prescri mm. prescribing sector has got that. Whereas if we could really light that fire under the NHS and get them to understand that actually the adoption of cannabis in as an integ integral um, compound within prescribing and within therapy therapy production in the in the health service, there isn't going to be a nationalized health service. Mm. Yeah, there's it's so something that MedCan's looking at as well, because within the prescribed world, the amount of information we get on the prescribed oils is very little. Um, so it's something that we're trying to change. We're, you know, we're doing that through the CIC, but also we're doing that um, through MedCan as well and through Cali's expertise. And we're trying to get that information to families. And, you know, from our perspective, that's only going to aid that um, 
that informed choice. So at the moment, you know, if I see, you know, not every product works out there. You know, there's many, many fans that tried cannabis and that hasn't helped them. Now, there's various reasons for that. Um, but one of the fundamental ones is that we only know CBD and THC on any of the products. So if, a, you know, I've seen many families that have used Vegalite as an example, but due to costs, they've then changed product and moved to a different product. They've then seen a massive, well, I say massive, but they've seen a significant increase in seizures. Why is that? Because you're looking at two oils, you're looking at CBD and THC, very similar in ratio. Then obviously, you know, why are you then seeing extra seizures? Cannabis is cannabis, isn't it? That's how it works. So this is where phytocannabinoids and, you know, the, the chemical profile is really, really important. And as you say, the terpenes as well. So this is something we're really striving for is that to have that, that information there. And then that gives that informed choice and starts giving clinicians that a bit like in America with Bonnie Goldstein, she gave an example that uh, she prescribed a particular oil to a child the mum kept saying, you know, seizures are getting worse. It's, she's not responding really well. And then the body's, you know, I think she's THC sensitive and kept talking about THC. And then Bonnie started looking at the bigger picture and looking at the terpene profile. She then done an allergy test. And this particular child was, at, was having a, an allergic reaction to a terpene. So she then changed product, removed that terpene, and lo and behold, seizures decreased significantly. So we're miles away from having that understanding, but it is there. So the more we know about the individual product, the more experience that doctors get in the private sector, the more information that we can start gathering through the various different um, projects, that will bring, you know, I feel in the future, that will bring more confidence to clinicians and start educating them, start giving them this information, start teaching them through various different methods. And then hopefully in the future, that, you know, we can be where, like the bodies are now. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously we're only the precipice of understanding, so like things like the entourage effect. That's only sort of recently got consensus, sort of understanding and acceptance, um, and various other sort of avenues of research are just not being explored because they're not profitable. So I know quite a few people in this country with various PhDs working quite high, high up in academia within study. And I've spoken to them about things like metabolism conversion and, and effects of, uh, say, omegas on endogenous cannabinoid production. And so things like how runners high exercise affects the endocannabinoid. And it's like mm -hmm. nobody is not only doing these studies, people are being paid to not do them. They're being co-opted into larger companies to, no, come study this instead. Come help us figure out this thing that will be generate X amount more profit rather than knowledge. And I worry that we're being too far driven by the carrot that we're going to end up off the beach before we've even looked up at the scenery. I don't know why we're a donkey in this analogy, but you get you get you get what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And and so I think the the free sharing of that information, it it's kind of anathema to what the neoliberalistic capitalists that have invested into this industry kind of want from it, because that's not that's our that's our product. Uh, USP, you know, that that's our secret ingredient. That's our little bit of magic in there that they don't want revealed because there is still this, this massive motivator for there to be a competitive blood sport within, mm. as I call it again, the medical cannabis industrial complex to be the best to reach that patent, to be the one who discovers that breakthrough. But they're only being pushing to for that breakthrough if they can then be the ones who own the product that treats that breakthrough. Yeah. 
And I think that is part of the reason why things have been held back at the moment is, you know, this competition between LPs and, you know, being sensitive around that information. But ultimately, from my perspective, I want what's best for my son and I need that information and the doctors need that information. And, you know, from what I'm, I'm hearing, doctors are actually calling for that information as well. They cannot make a informed, a properly informed prescribed decision when you've got various products, what's in the best interest for that patient. Um, as we say, cannabis is very individual, but you need to know the whole product and what's in it to be able to make that informed choice. So based from a, from a patient's perspective and from a, a clinician's perspective. It's, so, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to me that, uh, I think I brought this up in a podcast with Sam Cannon the other day about uh, Oregon and their regulations for the cannabis sales. So when you get your pop top or your, your Mylar bag or whatever sealed product you buy from a dispensary in Oregon, on the side of it, it tells you the cannabinoid profile, the terpene profile, and the ingredients used in its cultivation. So it will tell you what riso, what PKs, or anything that's been put into it. So it, then it's frustrating to me that someone who is just, I'm air quoting here, I'm going to speak as a, a conservative politician, just looking to get high, um, can have that much information and make that much of an informed choice and decision. Go speak to a bud tender that has probably tried every product and knows it inside out. Have that chat, be welcomed into that environment, and then ushered off to go enjoy their product. Compared to then a person in this country who is still threat in most for all intents and purposes as a criminal that isn't believed that medical cannabis exists by the police when they're stopped, who are still harassed by employers, who are still facing all kinds of uh, persecution. Mm -hmm. And then when they go to make that informed decision, they've got to base it on a ratio of THC to CBD based on what? The talking points of right-wing politicians for the past 15 years in this country. There's no mm -hmm. science. There's no rationale to it. If you actually know anything about the plant, you know that the, the cannabinoids within it are, yes, one part of the euphoric intoxicant effect, but the synergy of the terpenes is what's going to send you in whatever psychological, uh, sort of, yeah, psychological direction, what the experience is going to be in your own mind. And mm. so when we have then got people in this country that I've spoken to sort of directly over Instagram that were prescribed and getting an Israeli product of 22 to 1, so 22% uh, THC, 1% CBD, and they were using it for anxiety, but then because the supplier couldn't, couldn't get access to it because that crop had run out, I'm guessing, they then were suddenly switched onto a Canadian product with the exact same cannabinoid profile, but it vastly increased their anxiety. Yeah because yeah. it was something very orangey and lemony. It was quite citrusy terps for them, and they found it too overstimulating. They couldn't then consume it, mm. but they were then left with a product that they couldn't return, but they then didn't have the money to source it from a leg from the legacy market or a, a home grower, you know? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very similar story of epilepsy. So if you take the Betrolite issue with the whole Brexit thing, so just to explain it all, it's um, so Betrocan flour in Holland is given to Transvaal Pharmacy. Transvaal Pharmacy then produce the oil. Um, and over there, it's prescription-based, so they can't export to the UK, but they do accept UK, or they used to accept UK prescriptions. So us parents would travel to Holland and pick up three months' worth and bring that back illegally. Um, and then, they, you know, basically, long story short, after Brexit, UK prescriptions were no longer valid. So we then started hearing talk of, oh, that's not a problem, we can reproduce the you know, the THC, the CBD ratio here in the UK. That's not a problem. What they're not understanding is that actually that chemical profile is what the parents need. Mm -hmm. They're like, that's okay. We can just import vegetable flour and we'll extract it here. You know, we can CO2 extract it. 
Well, no, actually, the extraction method also plays a massive role in the end product. So we know that transvalve is very basic, it's just FNL extraction. So trying to explain to licensed producers and you know all these folk in the UK sector that are saying it's not an issue, it's a massive issue. These children are doing really, you know, there's some um, high-profile cases, like Alfie Dingley, uh, Joe's son, Ben, um, Lisa's son, Cole and Karen's Murray, they're all seizure-free on Medricam products. You then go and change that to something else. You know, with epilepsy or with refractory epilepsy, sometimes if you change the product, or even if they're doing really, 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 really well, they could then relapse and you don't regain that control again. So there is a terminology for it, which I can't remember. But so it is really, really important that these, you know, this profile is kept the same, you know, not changing the cultivar or anything like that. Even the extraction methods play a role. Yeah, massively, massively. And again, there is so much more nuance in this than the, unfortunately, a lot of the people that have risen to the top fast within the emerging, again, medical cannabis industrial complex are people with access. They are gatekeepers. They are people that know people. They have wide, vast networks and usually quite a bit of wealth behind them. But they have no knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the people with the knowledge are still sat in prison cells. They're still sat in their bedrooms, scared that the door's going to go in because they've got their 20 plants that they need to keep themselves going. You know, the people that are vastly just turned off and disgusted by what they're seeing through this attempt of creating a legalized model. And until there is this kind of parlay and this safe space created between them where the conversation and discourse can occur, rather than this kind of classist attitude of, oh, no, 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 no. When actually mm. some of the best cultivators I have known are people who have no inclination or desire to grow big. They're not interested. They don't, they don't care for cars or watches or anything like that. They want to grow the best weed possible so that they can enjoy it and, and share it with a few other really good growers. And they, mm. want to, they want that small life. And until their knowledge and their experience is somehow brought into um, a, a system that is accepting of them, and that isn't then going to try and whitewash them or, or write them out of history, mm. but be accepting of them and open that door to them. We're going to spend the next 20, 30 years trying to recruit their knowledge. We're going to waste yeah. so many much time. So many people are going to die. There'll be so much suffering in the world because of ignorance. And then they're going to follow these wrong narratives. They're literally following old propaganda. The reason we're looking at THC versus CBD is because of the marketing of CBD, is because of the skunk psychosis myths created mm. uh, basically off the back of GW's cultivation of the skunk number one uh, cultivar. We, we live in this odd paradoxical reality where we have, again, as we, we spoke of before, the, the mountains of anecdotal evidence of individuals' lived experience versus the standardized copy-paste response of we need more evidence, we need more research. Well, actually, you've got people that have been doing that research in their own lives, in their own communities that have been helping each other for decades and generations. And there has to be yeah. that, that kind of that welcoming to it, because ultimately the, the majority of people that are now finding themselves in the medical cannabis sector or in the medical cannabis world, having come at it from a patient, most of them got their understanding that cannabis can help them therapeutically from accessing it illegally. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, um, yeah, it's something the UK sector does need to definitely be looking at. Um, like I say, at the moment, the vast majority, 99%, is imported. So all the growers, et cetera, uh, this is pharmaceutical. Um, but 
yeah, I hope in the U, as the UK sector grows, they do start talking to, you know, and again, this is where maybe my voice and others within the sector can actually start saying, well, are you looking at UK growers, the ones that have been growing recreationally for many, many years, using their expertise to help your company produce the best cannabis, which is going to ultimately help our children and patients, adult patients as well. So, yeah, I definitely agree. It's, there's definitely an in-between and, you know, a collaboration to be had there. It's, it's the legacy strains as well. So I said strains, well, cultivars. <laughs> so I had this whole, I recorded a few days ago with Tyler Green from iSmoke. We do a regular series in conversation and he did it on strain reviews. And I spent the first 10 minutes going, strains don't exist. These are not mushrooms or a virus. And yeah, it's a real slip of the tongue there. Um, but yeah, so the cultivars that are in sort of captivity, let's call them, um, and in the hands of the legacy market that, again, are not interested in, in participating in the world as they see it currently, they probably hold the, the keys to some amazing research. They hold the keys to some amazing products and flour that can help so many people. Um, and I just worry that the crossing and waiting for science to get to the understanding of really breaking down the genome of cannabis, as it were, understanding all of the constituent components and how they're put together, that's going to take decades. Mm. Whereas I think actually, if we can just kind of go to everyone that's, that's already got cultivars, that's been breeding their own for forever and have almost like a, what did you call it? Like a census of who's got what profile, what, and then go, Oh my God, this is for this. And, allow people to then get access sort of through other means, not just through a pharma uh, prescribed pharmaceutical system, because actually a lot of the people who are gaining benefit from cannabis are still vaping or combusting it. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. It's, again, I've heard various different models on the legalization side and some really interesting ones as well, which could probably work. But from, again, our fight is, you know, our children, if I wasn't about, Charlie's not able to grow his own. He's not about, he's non-verbal. So from our perspective, it has to come from a clinical, you know, clinician. But I do completely get that, you know, those that are able to grow or, you know, be able to talk with experts without going to the doctor. I completely get that. That's, yeah, it does make complete sense. Um, but again, you're talking about, you know, again, it's about looking at the real world evidence and those that are seeing benefit from wherever they're getting their cannabis from. It's about gathering that evidence and the UK government and not so much the government, but more the medical sector is actually accepting it as evidence. It's a massive thing that we've really got at the minute, a challenge that we're seeing with pediatrics is, is the BPNA and NICE and you know this massive need for RCTs. In some ways, COVID and the anecdotal data that they've had on the vaccines and various other treatments for COVID, that's kind of benefited us to kind of highlight that, you know, you've used the basic analysis, et cetera, which we're using cannabis to promote, you know, the um, treatments for COVID. So why can't we be using that for cannabis? Why are we, so again, it's an argument to be had, um, but yeah, there's definitely a huge strength in real world evidence. Mm. Yeah, I think I mentioned this sort of before. My fear is that because of the nature of the beast, as it were, the structure of the apparatus we find ourselves operating within, that there isn't really the incentive to create the common sharing of that information. There, there is that perverse incentive financially to push that into quietly into your own lab. And this is what I was saying about then the participation of 
I mean, there's a, been a call for recently in Scotland, I know, and there's been various calls over the years. But I know uh, Professor Mike Barnes has been very vocal in being an advocate for this, that GPs should be able to prescribe. And I think that if we could, even if fulfillment of the prescriptions was still done by external parties through a privatised system, the prescribing through GPs would at least create a, a giant database with inside of the NHS of why people are being prescribed, their responses to it, the reduction of other medications, the withdrawal mm-hmm. of other therapies. And this would then create data sets that would be incredibly valuable to place forward for campaigns um, to advocate for a much more liberalized model because you could then show efficacy, you could show savings, you could then show so, mm-hmm. so much more within this. And I just don't think that data is ever going to be accrued in the or rather that data will be accrued in the private sector, but it will never be used in the same way. It would then be bastardized and massaged into a, uh, a form used to create legislation that is, yes, create, gains further access to some to some people, but highly profits their shareholders at the end of the day. Uh, so I agree. It's, um, I know the NHS have got their own data set they're looking at, but again, they're only looking at prescribed NHS products. So again, you're only looking at Sativex and Epidiolex. So what, what new information are you going to gather over the RCTs that you've already got? So it's a pointless exercise. Um, with regards to um, GPs prescribing, yep, completely back that. Um, and the date, exactly what you just said, that, that makes complete sense. But from a paediatric perspective, again, GPs are not involved in refractory epilepsy. So as, when I saw that, um, there's articles recently that came out, I was a little bit confused because like, well, actually our GP has never had any involvement in Charlie's condition other than the first time that we went to go and see him. Um, and there are further complications behind that with regards to funding and CCGs, and it gets really complex. But, yeah, the model generally to grab, gather that evidence from a population-wide, from adults, et cetera, it, it does make complete sense. Um, and I think also from a private perspective, again, if I look at paediatrics, we've got one clinician prescribing. There's approximately 60 to 100 children being prescribed privately. That's a tiny cohort. So from an evidence perspective, when you, you know, if we gathered all of that together, we gave that to NICE, likely just to ignore it. And recently I switched with Sapphire Clinics as well, who uh, they have their own data set through uh, children that are prescribing. But again, because it's so small, they're not reporting on it. Um, it does, it's so insignificant at the moment. It's just, there's no point publishing it. So again, this is where in paediatric epilepsy, some of the uh, syndromes, like Alfie Dingley is a perfect example, Hannah's son, he's one, he's the only kid in the UK with that condition. So how are you, you know, that's unique to him. And with Charlie's condition, you know, there's only 300 children in the UK born with that, um, with that epilepsy. So again, the evidence base and how many of them are going to be using cannabis? So this is where actually I've been talking to clinicians and um, drug science and various other organisations around the world about actually an international database. So for children, or specifically children, it's looking at, you know, running the same study, but across the world, get Australia, get Canada, get, you know, various countries in Europe. And then also we've got this massive data set of the same study of the various different children, different syndromes, but all using medical cannabis or prescribed cannabis. Um, in my mind, that, you know, that's really strong. But again, would NICE accept that? So... Yeah, lots of ideas. But. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's the issue because for years before the change of law in November 2018, the response from the UK government was cannabis has no accepted medical value. 
So it was mm. always the, the the power of the the accepted within that sentence. Yeah, and it's true because the the data sets that exist around the world. I mean, Christ, just go back to Keith Stroop's um, quote. He was the guy who founded Normal in the seventies in America, and when he spoke in, I think it was the late seventies, maybe early eighties, he's and he spoke spoke on this. He said, "There's twenty seven thousand academic papers on this." Mm. That was in the 80s. That was before the discovery of the endocannabinoid system, just to give people an idea of what data has been created since then. That was before the internet and digitalization. You imagine what we have globally, collectively, exactly that. If there could be this interconnectivity over borders in the digital space, if it could get around the the individual politics and, and bullshit of each government and actually serve the best interests and needs, because I imagine a lot of the specialists that work within especially refractory epilepsy in children, there must be some hardy motherfuckers to, to go to see that. I mean, the, the, the survival rates of some of the conditions are unbelievable. And to see that kind of trauma and the damage of that consecutively and consistently, that if they can have access to something that is that powerful, that shows the way there's how many thousands there's how many, what, and the, the constant update and correlation of that data would, I think, move mountains because then once you have the, the, the specialists themselves truly informed they will move mountains against their governments. Yeah, well, again, it's... Or try, try to move mountains against their governments. I think it's do with the neurologists, you know, my experience of neurologists, but especially the BPNA, which is the British Pediatric Neurology Association, they, you know, Dr. Martinez, who prescribed for Charlie, the reason she left the NHS was she's, you know, she'd seen so many children under her care die when potentially there are other medications that could have treated them, which is just not available in the NHS. So she went private and that gave her the freedom to then you know, prescribe things like cannabis. And yeah, it's from my experience and from what I've seen, that link, you know, you've got the BPNA, they are sponsored by pharmaceuticals. You've got the, the BP, that's the British Pediatric Association. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so they've, they've been, yeah, they've been quite vocal. Um, actually, they've been more than vocal, they've been active in preventing prescribing of um, cannabis. So there was um, there's Dr. Hassan, who's got 40 children under his care. He's linked to the medical cannabis clinics. And he was investigated by the GMC. Now, that was upheld by the BPNA. Now, unfortunately, that was kicked out. And we've done quite a bit of reporting on that recently. And the GMC expert actually highlighted that the BPA guidance is not in the best interests of our children. And that the children are doing really, really well. So it's that kind of... I don't know, I don't want to start being some sort of kind of conspiracy theorist, but you do have to question, you know, Great Ormond Street are sponsored by pharmaceuticals. So certain departments rely on that extra funding coming from, you know, Big Pharma to enable them to do their research in epilepsy or whichever condition it is. Mm -hmm. So there's this over-reliance on RCTs and the Big Pharma Sorry, I'm trying to. We're using a lot of acronyms. RCT is a randomized controlled trial. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> it, well, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, yeah, so it's how do we get around that? How do we start saying, you know, pushing the agenda, saying actually, randomized controlled trials are not the be all and end all, but then without upsetting the big pharma and you know, you speak to Professor Alan Cross, and they're all saying, oh, we we need randomized controlled trials. We can't. That's the bit. That's the gold standard we can't get away from that we won't accept anything without that but the products that they put through the randomized control trials can then only be 
synthetic or biosynthesized products because they're the only ones that will standardize and behave in the trial enough for the data to be relevant to make the the, the trial work. And they know yep. this. So it's kind of this, when this catch 22, I've just, uh, today actually between recording podcasts, I've just started watching Dope Sick, a Hulu series uh, with Michael Keaton based on uh, the Sackler family and the rise of Oxycontin in America. Hmm. And yeah, I'm quite happy to dive in and be conspiracy theorists on your behalf here. Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> folks, that is well worth checking out uh, as, as a series. There's um, so some really great documentaries and exposes out there about sort of big farmers links to various governments around the world and how the industry as a whole kind of operates, how sort of certain drugs get approval and the revolving door that exists between governmental departments and pharmaceutical boards in the UK and in uh, America and much of Europe. And uh, yeah, it's a good little rabbit hole to find yourself in, folks, if, if you want to. And it, this is why I call the medical cannabis industrial complex, because I believe that that is the front face that is paid for by Big Pharma for them to co-opt this, to create enough data sets and enough acceptance that they can then create patented compounds that are designed through synthesized uh, cannabinoids or biosyntheses, so converting other cannabinoids into synthetic compounds. And my worry is that that's obviously where the patents are. That's where they can get the randomized control trials. That's where they can prove e efficacy under their model. And it's where they're going to push out this profitability for decades to come, unless there is this consensus that arises within each of the nuances, be it pediatric uh, epilepsy or be it cancer study, be it whatever field of, um, of medical study until the countries start speaking to each other, until people in different regions actually go, well, what are you doing over there? What are you doing over there? Rather than be, being limited by these governing bodies and entities that have, as you've said, have been set up in, by the system to prop up the status quo. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's a massive challenge and something that, yeah, needs looking at. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you would get around that, how, you know, do we start looking at, you know, uh, Maple Tree, which is our consultancy? They've published um, guides, again, as Professor Mike Barnes, but they're, they're talking about a potentially an office of medical cannabis, maybe copying or looking at how Holland do it. So do we actually take med uh, prescribed cannabis, or I'm using medical cannabis now, do we take prescribed cannabis out of the NHS altogether and actually have a, a different sector? Is that maybe the, the better future for it? Mm -hmm. um, but the you know questions then how would that be funded? Obviously, we don't want that private to make it population wide. So there's lots of questions, lots of ideas. It's just trying to yeah, yeah put it all together and push it forward. I mean, my dream would be we kick in the gates of GW. We take back the hundred tons a year that they're cultivating to pharmaceutical standards. We sell that to the population and use their facilities to cultivate the cultivars the best show the the chemo our profile that is most beneficial to various conditions because I, I still believe that if we're then saying that cannabis that's cultivated to one standard is safe to be consumed for x amount of conditions and you're then saying that when it's cultivated by the the masses it's not of high enough quality therefore it makes it a dangerous product it's simple grow everything to that pharmaceutical standard to good manufacturing practices and to everything else and then you sell at a higher rate to the millions of people that are consuming it already and then that funds everything else within that research and development for then the creation of things like cannabinoid uh, inhalers, pills, suppositories, oils, various treatment methods um, that can then often use the same chemovars 
within them. So actually, if we could then have a division within that that is prophylactics, I know that's a scary word to the big pharma industry of actually allowing people to have a continuity of their health rather than them getting ill and then getting access to something. Because ultimately, my other vision, as I've said, with the growing cannabis on the NHS, is that we fortify foods and grains with non-psychoactive cannabinoids, the same way we do with vitamins like niacin in cereals. Mm. If we did something like that, the state of the health of the country would boof overnight. But then again, that mm. would reduce thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers from an industry that makes trillions off the perpetuation of suffering. So it's you can kind of see why we're in the position we're in, but it's, it's thanks to sort of compassionate individuals like yourself that have gone through the rigor of this, that have tried everything, that have listened to the doctors and listened to the system and gone, this, there's got to be something else. And you found something else. And I think what's most painful to a lot of people in your position when I speak to them is that they're, they're, they're outraged and angered that, why did I have to find this? Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. I've always, I've always kind of said, or as the, our battles got on, is cannabis in some ways is a curse. Why did it have to be cannabis that helped Charlie? You know, why could it have been something else that was much more easier, accessible? Uh, why couldn't it have been um, ground unicorn horn? That would have been so much easier. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, yeah, in, in many ways, yes, cannabis has been you know, our new hope, our, I don't want to say saviour, but, you know, it's, it's really brought, made a massive change for our lives. But in the, in the same sense, it's also been a curse in that we're having to fund this, you know, privately, privately fund it, try and find the funds every month. Think about the future, his access, you know, when he's, when we're not about, what access is he going to have? You know, it's just, yeah, there's many things that you think about. And again, that's what pushes me, to keep doing what I'm doing or try my best to try and understand it all. And, you know, there's another thing as well as collaboration. Medcan isn't going to do this on its own. I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. Hannah's not going to do it on her own or as Kelly. So it's all about working together, collaborating with various different organizations and thinking about different ideas and sharing them ideas, sharing the data, um, getting it out there and yeah, just trying to work together to push, mm-hmm. push for access. Yeah. I mean, my fight is still at this point. It's the first step I, I would advocate for and seek is ubiquitous decriminalization because then we could have what emerged in 2001 around that sort of time with the work of like uh, Colin Davies, of people like uh, so Jeff Ditchfield, Winston Matthews, um, Alan Bufri, people like that that were around opening sort of the coffee shops and working in that era. And they set up a system that basically a microcosm of what I've just described in the NHS. They sold to then so-called recreational or adult consumers, and then people with the needed access then got it for cheaper, and people loved it. People were more than happy to come in knowing that they were watching people's health in their lifestyle and their, their quality of life improve week on week because they were buying weed from there rather than somewhere else. So I, I still think that, that there is a, a commonality for all. We are in different fights we are still on the same battlefield we're just in different microcosms you know what i mean yeah and, yeah. and i appreciate and sort of respect you taking the time to uh to, to talk to me because it's one thing i'm really working on with this project as a podcast and generally my life as a whole moving forward is to create unity i've too often been an agent of division through my own ignorance through my own anger my own resentment of being weaponized by others and misinformation against campaigns and individuals and yeah, I think the the more we can show that we're we're on that same battlefield, that actually a victory for one is a victory for all, 
as long as what is done is done openly. And I think that mm. let's appreciate about Medcan is you are very upfront with not that it's a limited focus, but it's a nuanced kind of argument, but you grow that out to the much larger, you understand your position within that. And I think too often organizations with it from the medical side of it or prescribed side of it, as it were, um, end up stuck within their nuance and they can't see the bigger picture. Yeah, no, it's like I say, it's for us, it is that nuance. We are very small, the you know, pediatric, in the medical sector, pediatrics only make up 1%, it's tiny. Um, and also within the medical sector, the vast majority of licensed producers are looking at pain. They're looking at that return on, on investment. You're not going to get that in epilepsy. You're not going to get that in children. So we are the voice within the, the sector as well. We, you know, we, we're sitting there waving our hands going, oh, wait, don't forget about us. Um, and that's a big part of what Hannah does as well. Um, you know, she, she's a huge voice within the medical sector to you know, be a voice for our children. So it's, um, yeah, but at the same time, we understand what the bigger, you know, what everyone else is fighting for. So we're not saying we don't support legalization or the cream in whichever form that comes in, but we have to focus on now in, you know, our little battle. Um, albeit it's a tiny battle, it's huge for us. So, you know, it's, and ultimately I hope that will help think, you know, move things forward. You know, an individual little battle will help the bigger, no, hang on, is it the individual fight helps the bigger battle? Yeah, no, I think you're, you're entirely right. And it took me a while to kind of recognize the nuance of such a thing because I felt almost personally offended by the idea of medical cannabis because of ex exactly what I spoke of before, that it kind of creates this division, this false dichotomy that, oh, medical cannabis does all these wonderful things, but cannabis causes psychosis, cannabis is addictive, cannabis is this, cannabis is that. And it was like, mm. whoa. And again why i appreciate the use of prescribed cannabis i think is a far better term for it and uh, the the best i've heard thus far and thus i'm stealing and <laughs> using and moving forward i won't quite claim it as my own but I will, I will be using that moving forward matt um but yeah i think that having that acceptance of the other within this sector is going to move us farther forward faster that was a hard sentence to say. Um, yeah. So rather than us being the crabs in the bucket, pulling each other down, we, we can be there lifting each other up. I mean, shit, mm. if those crabs were smart, they'd be trying to dig out the bottom of that bucket. <laughs> uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, th I think the, the more these conversations can occur, the more that, that mm. we can show this, this commonality. And, and it's also the, within the, the actual, the medical sector as well, there's been a divide there. There's, you know, certain organizations that have led the way and, not wanted to collaborate with other organizations. And that's partly why the CIC was set up, um, was to, you know, bring everyone. It's not just medical, it's hemp, it's, you know, CBD, et cetera. So it's trying to bring that conversation, but be patient, was as patient focused as it can, but also respect that this is business as well. And people want to make money and you know we do need money invested to move things forward. So it's, it's trying to, bring everyone together and have that conversation, but with all of us around the table. So it's the patients, it's the licensed producers, it's the clinicians, it's you know uh, the importers, et cetera, the pharmacists. So everyone involved uh, all sat around the same table. We're all having the same discussion. So, you know, hopefully that will work. It's, it's early days, but it's looking promising at the moment. Out of all of the regulatory bodies and industry specialist groups that I have seen arise over the past sort of decade, I do think they have the best opportunity um, to really create unity. They are, they are, from my understanding as well, uh, 
So quietly, you're going to be looking at uh, expanding into representing of a potential adult market uh, moving forward and taking a position on that, which is something I, I eagerly uh, await. And I think it's something that, that needs to be done because exactly as you've spoke of, we're all, it's all cannabis TVRL, whatever we want to call it, however we want to break it down, whether we want to be on the hemp side of it or as a CBD salesman or whatever it is, we're all part of the same battle to be allowed to work with the plant and develop a relationship with it as, as we wish. Obviously, some of us are, are fighting for, I was going to say, personal interest. And I don't mean that in the sense of greed. I mean, in the sense of what no, yeah, the yeah. career and gain access and whatever else. Some of us, it's life or death for ourselves and for our family and for, for others close to us. But I think that an honest conversation and an open dialogue around our motivators is the thing that will drive us there fastest. Because otherwise, if we're tripping each other up and going, oh, we've got this quietly, we're hiding it from others. Every day, a child with epilepsy faces the potential lethal seizure. Mm -hmm. Every day, uh, another person gets a di terminal di diagnosis of cancer. You know, Every day, somebody mm -hmm. suffers with, with chronic pain or with a myriad of other conditions that, that worsens the, their life and, and speeds up their death. And it is... It, it's bullshit that it's, it's held back by a sort of greed and personal uh, individual interest when actually that in, you could make more if we all go together. You think that the market's big now with the potential of a cap of, they're looking at Germany and looking at 100,000 prescriptions and everyone's going, oh, look at the actual populations of people that consume. Look at the actual uh, size of the uh, individual conditions, the populations of people that suffer from the conditions and the percentages of people that found in trials that this can aid. Those are baby numbers. Those are amateur rookie numbers. This is going to go huge and it will get there faster if they just take a fucking foot off the brick. As you said before, if they stop stifling research and, and the announcement and the public awareness of what is quite well known in a lot of these boardrooms. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, although it's, there's a huge amount to tackle though. It's just trying to und, untwine all of that and get past the bureaucracy and yeah, it's just kind of how do we do that? And you know, we're, we're now about to go to Parliament. You've got um, agreed today and confirmed. So Medcan are collaborating with Drug Science, and we're off to Parliament on the second November to basically tell MPs the evidence and talk about this isn't a campaign. We're just there to um, to end our pain. We'll be there during the day to to fight their um, you know to fight their campaign, but we're there to talk to MPs and basically say, this is the evidence. This is the real world evidence. This is the data collected. Listen to it. Look at it. These are the families. Talk to them. And then also kind of um, argue the case of RCTs versus real world evidence and the, the strength of real world evidence and why I should be taking that into account and the issues to access. So, yeah, I think, I hope, conversations and more you know i'm not saying that that event's going to change anything it's unlikely to do anything but they all help it's just that little bit you know if one pmp walks away from that and just goes oh actually okay right i get what they're saying mm -hmm. you know that's that little bit and it's kind of if it all if we can all do that and all do our little bit and just keep pushing forwards and as i say working our own little fights and the way that we feel is best for our individual situation but be aware of everyone else it's just to you know, and to collaborate and to talk like we're doing today is, you know, we come from completely different perspectives, but, you know, we can agree to disagree and, but as long as you respect one another and, mm -hmm. you know, and just promote and help one another, then yeah, as you say, things will move faster. I hope. 
Yeah, I mean, the only thing that springs to mind there is a quote that I'm constantly forever regurgitating on this podcast. It's a <laughs> guy called Upton Sinclair saying that you cannot expect a man to understand something when his salary is contingent on him not understanding it. And that's how I feel about quite a lot of the MPs because of the scope and scale of, again, the, the medical cannabis industrial uh, complex that they have been building allies for a long time, as was very tactfully alluded to by yourself earlier with the creation of the CIC was basically in, op- <laughs> in, op- in opposition to, a, let's call it a monolith that emerged within the UK and the European sector, um, trying to create a one-man monopoly um, uh, yeah, around the sector and as a pay-to-play access system. And I think the, the difference with the CIC and what it hopefully and what I'm quietly going to observe and hope for is that it's going to create an incentive for the information to come from the ground up rather than that being filtered through these mechanisms of the people who will profit from the perpetuation of that knowledge. Do, do, do you get what I mean? Does that sense? Yeah, yeah. I think that's partly my role as well as a patient advocate. You know, I'm not industry. I'm there for my son, but also as MedCan to represent adult patients as well. So it's kind of... To, yeah, I kind of, I don't, don't know how much of a say, but, you know, I do, I am involved in the executive and team and, you know, we talk regularly. So I hope that my voice does play a role in trying to, you know, keep things grounded and bring that patient focus to it. Excellent. I've only got a couple more questions that I'll, uh, I'll keep you for. Um, you spoke up before, is Charlie still on uh, Bedrolite product? No, so we were on Vegelite and then we moved across over a, over a year ago now. He's on what's called Slixer, which is from Old Pharma in Israel. Okay, so are you affected by the the Brexit issue? No, no. So Brexit is just Vegelite only because of the prescription. So Vegelite isn't um, isn't imported into the UK because it's prescri- it, it can only be dispensed via prescription. So. Um, Whereas Betulite, uh, sorry, whereas Selexa and all the other oils available can be exported as a normal medical export. So that's that's why Betulite is unique um, and different to all the other oils. It's a shame because there's quite a lot of kids really dependent on that and they've just been kind of kicking it down the road with the extensions. Yeah, so the last update is um, they have now got the license, I believe. Um, so this is a UK... Um, uh, what they're called Target in the UK. They're based in Scotland. Uh, they will be uh, importing flour and producing vegetable oil under the same conditions as Transvaal here in the UK. So they, I believe, now do have a license, although they haven't started producing the oil yet. So the deadline is January um, the first. So we're very, you know, we haven't got long until that deadline reaches. Um, and there are. There's not a huge amount of children on that particular role anymore at the moment. Again, that's due to cost because vegetable flour is, uh, sorry, vegetable flour is quite expensive. Um, it's probably the most expensive available. But um, yeah, hopefully, you know, that will that will start happen soon. Um, and then yeah, I can say there's quite a few children that are doing really, really well in that oil, and they can't afford for that not to be available. So if there isn't, they'll be kicking off. I can assure you from that. Um, I can guarantee Hannah will be right there at the top, properly mm. kicking off. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's good news at the moment from what I'm hearing. Interesting, because then I wonder if they're then importing the flour, then they're not going to irradiate it to end market because they're not going to want to damage any of the, the properties of it 
to extract it. So then that makes me wonder the sheer volume of it. There's got to be the odd bag seed come across in there. I really wish we were in pirating days of just kind of going, well, we've got the seed for it now. You know, I mean, screw, screw the Dutch. Yeah, yeah, we don't need Europe anymore. We voted for this, for better or for worse. We're on this little island. We grow yeah. fields of the bloody thing. Could happen, yeah. I'm sure there's many already on the case. Um, <laughs> now, I don't know. I don't know if it's... As far as I know, it, still be, it will still be irradiated over in Petrocamp mm. before it reaches the pharmacy. Interesting, because I've seen some sort of studies recently and been speaking to, uh, I'm not going to name the individual actually for anonymity purposes, someone who works within uh, a testing company here in the UK, and he's been sending me sort of comparative images of what the trichome structure looks like on top of the uh, the buds from the irradiated import versus kind of your traditional grown, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm due a conversation with uh, with our chemist friend, so I will be uh, asking her about how that then affects the uh, the structure of um, the various compounds within it. Because my understanding is something like the terpenes are incredibly volatile. That if then yeah. the heads of the trichomes are then damaged, you're then going to lose the the terpenes within it. So you, if- yeah, from what I know is the heat. Um, so the radiation, the heat uh, that it's formed. Um, isn't great for the terpenes mm-hmm. so and then again you've got the ethanol extraction as well of petrolite um so again it's not great for terpenes so this is something again where testing and full analysis is really important to understand what do these oils contain so yes we know petrolite is, is a very effective oil for epilepsy childhood epilepsy but it do up or what role are terpenes playing in that are there any terpenes and at what strength you know there's lots of unanswered questions but Again, this is about having that knowledge to then understand what's going on and move, you know, the research can move forward. But it's having the incentive as well to do the research because I imagine then the company in the UK that's going to be extracting that, they ain't going to care what's in it as long as it's, it, we actually, sorry, they will care what's in it, but they're not going to kind of care about the science of kind of why it works as long as it works, as long as they have the continuation of the contract. But then this is where MedCan med comes in. We're independent. This is where, you know, this is why we want to read. We're researching for our children to get the better outcomes. But, you know, I hope one day that I'll have a much better understanding through research of cannabis and potentially help Charlie even further and, you know, have that seizure freedom. Are you allowed so, to do third-party testing? Uh, yes, so we are collaborating with, we've spoken with various licensed producers and they're happy to send us oils and through Cali and their expertise. Um, we hope to, so we have, Already uh, spoken with two universities uh, in the UK who are happy to test. Um, but yeah, there's other um, labs that are also interested. So it's again, the scheduling is a bit awkward because once it becomes research, it's schedule one. If it's prescribed, it's schedule two. So we have to get work around the licensing and how the product is moved between licensed producer and the lab. But once we get around that, it's then... Um, yeah, there's... you could have, could you do a self-reporting system? So if, for example, a patient was then prescribed the product for their own validation of health and safety, et cetera, and to understand the uniformity and standards of the product, they could independently test it. Is uh, it could, again, could, it's something could, could that we have looked cor- at, yeah. Correlate the data together, you know, if yes, the patients then is... submit the data. You haven't, you haven't touched anything testing-wise. All you've done is taken a certified document of testing from a third party. Yeah, no, that is something we're looking at. It's, um, but it's again, it's you want to avoid any kind of, you know, 
accusation that the test is null and void because of contamination and things like that. So yeah. it needs to be an unopened bottle. It's lots of things that we need to be thinking about mm. as to you know how how accepted that data would be by industry if we were to you know, if patients were to give it to us. So it's a little yeah. bit like the mold issue, you know, and there's lots of arguments back and forth around that. So again, it's trying to work with industry. I'd rather it be well, out, you know, I'd much rather that industry done this. We don't want to be mm. testing the oils. We'd rather industry, the licensed producers, test the oils, full analysis, be completely transparent and open. And going back to what we we're saying earlier is about having that that knowledge and know, you know, it's better for the clinicians and for the patients. It's a much more informed choice. Mm-hmm. I'd rather they've done that, but at the moment, that's not happening. That's something that we're all striving to, you know, and working with them to for them to do but in the meantime that's something that we feel that MedCan can maybe provide yeah i think advocation and pushing for for better labeling and better product mm-hmm. standards i think yeah is a way of doing it because uh, i'm reminding of an incident that i'm not going to name either party but when one um one self-appointed regulator in the uk decided to use a third party uh testing lab to then buy up uh, or they then bought up products from the rival regulators uh roster had them tested and then publicized the details off into the daily mail um the mm. that mechanism that crap wouldn't happen if it was transparent and it then boggles mm-hmm. the mind that they're saying that cannabis is this dangerous drug, this that we need more research and or in a special circumstance, we can provide it. That there isn't a higher quality of standard that is needed there. There isn't specific protocols and procedures that have been designed to ensure that people who know what the hell good cannabis is, that it is produced to that level. Mm. Yeah. Okay. It's something that the CIC are working really hard. So there's a standard subgroup, and we've got um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth is chair of that. Um, she's from Australia and, you know, she knows the regulation over there really, really well. And it's trying to, again, work with licensed producers and, and patients. And it's like, what do patients want to be seeing? And how can we work with the industry to bring that to the patients? Mm. It's about, again, that transparency and um, working. Again, it's, it's that collaborative approach rather than patients demand. You know, I've seen posts and bits and pieces on Twitter where patients are demanding bits and pieces but not actually understanding actually it is quite difficult for industry to do certain bits so actually for a pharmaceutical in the UK to test an oil they can do it in themselves but to do it independently and send it off somewhere is actually quite difficult and I'm finding that out because of the scheduling and the licensing and um, you know it'd be much easier if THC wasn't scheduled and you know and then opens up and then they enable the testing and stuff like that so yeah yeah, it's um, yeah. There's lots of uh, it. Just needs that, you know, that talk. This is where the CIC helps. So all of us around the table, patients better understand the industry and how it all works and the complexities behind the scenes. But also, licensed producers listening to us and what our needs are and clinicians and etc. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that it's it's pointless. I mean, what's what came out recently with the American report. Uh, cultivation in America is a hundredfold over demand. Mm. They've produced a hundred times more cannabis than they have legal markets to sell it. Was it America or was that Canada? I know, was it Canada that just disposed of a No, that was America. I haven't looked at Canada for a while yet. Sorry, my Canadian listeners, but actually shout out to all my American listeners. I was looking at the stats today. Biggest audience in Texas. All right, I see you guys. I see you guys. 
Um, but yeah, so they they have the oversupplied places like Oregon have obviously played a huge part in that because they didn't really limit uh, licenses. They didn't really limit the uh, total production that the, the uh, LPs, the licensed producers for anyone that wants to know that acronym um, can, can produce. And so they've got limited markets where they, they can't really move, move the products. And because then they don't want to see too much of a reductions in prices, they're trying to still artificially control markets. And then with the way the tax mechanisms work, you have to keep a certain amount of profit on top to, to keep the business viable. And the, the issue there is, is logistics. Ultimately, when it when it comes down to it, there are plenty of people in America that want to buy it. They just happen to live in the other states where they're not legally allowed to do it. And it's, it's the same thing is, is, is happening over here, but it, it's almost the other way around that the medical cannabis industrial complex is producing vast amounts of product, but they, they almost don't know quite what to do with it. They haven't understood the, the, their consumers, ultimately, if you want to look at it from that business relationship that way. So they've got all of these doctors that want to prescribe. They've then got the, the bodies that are then paid for by Big Pharma that are stopping them from being able to prescribe. You've then got millions, potentially, of people that are wanting to access, but then can't because of the bureaucracy that's been put in place, again, by the lobbying of that same Big Pharma. Mm. And so, as you say, the, the ultimate way to deal with all of this still, to me, comes down to, fuck it, I don't want to say legalize, but de-schedule cannabis, remove it from punitive and criminal measures. Because freeing the average idiot on the street with a fat joint, and I don't mean that, I mean that lovingly, not derogatorily, I'm quite often that idiot on the street with a joint. Um, <laughs> if by freeing them, we free that scheduling, we free that research, we free all of it, so that when people can, the, what is it, one point something million people who use it medicinally in this country, plus the extra couple of million of people who just goddamn enjoy it, when those people are allowed to tell those stories, when they're allowed to speak to their GP, when they're allowed to really get the narrative out there, we will learn more in a couple of months and years than, than we would in decades previous. It's it, That is the ultimate thing for me. I still believe that my fight, not my fight, it's not my personal fight, but the, the battle that I'm currently involved in or the little micro skirmish, I, I feel is to the betterment of every other industry, be it hemp, be it CBD, whatever, because the opening up of cannabis fully as ubiquitously as all of its applications benefits everybody else. But I will still then spend my time supporting people like yourself that are doing this in an open way that are being honest about what you're doing and, and really trying mm. to, to get I people think- to take sight, uh, take to uh, be aware and, and be, you need to be seen the, the children that are suffering and the, the nuance mm. of this to be brought to light. I think my only fear with, if you look at Canada and speaking with families in Canada and clinicians over there as well, is the interest. So, you know, the licensed producers, we know that Canadian pharmaceutical cannabis has you know, kind of collapsed and on the medical side. And they've turned their attentions to the recreational side. And that's, you know, research, funding for research is really, really difficult. So if you speak with um, uh, cannabinoids, uh, C4Ts for sure, but... They're a research, a little bit like drug science, MedCan and MCCS rolled into one. And, you know, funding for research is, is, is much better than the UK. They, you know, they've got their Canadian um, funding available. But ultimately, you know, a lot of the industry has moved its attention to the recreational because that's where the money is. The money isn't in the medical. So then what's basically, in short, the impact is that families like myself albeit they've got legalized access, the quality to the medicines, you know, they can go to dispensary down the road. But what they're finding is that, you know, there's not that consistency needed to treat refractory epilepsy. 
And then they're finding that, you know, they'll have one month where seizure control might be quite good. And next month it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting certificates of analysis and the regulation over legalized cannabis isn't the same as prescribed cannabis. So it's just things like that we need to be aware of and maybe get right in the UK. Do we get um, prescribed cannabis sorted first and get that right and then go down the legalization decrim route or do we do the decrim route? And yeah, so it's just kind of being aware of yeah. what's happened in other countries and not making the same mistakes here in the UK. Yeah, good, good uh, parallel for it. I mean, ultimately, Canada had a discretionary system from about 2001 with its uh, prescribed access or medical access, I suppose, in, in that statement. Um, but what worries me about the UK is the situation that happened in America. So 1996 rolls around, California goes, oh yeah, there's a handful of qualifying conditions. Uh, and all of a sudden, everyone has these conditions. They self-identify. They go, they pay the doctor. Oh, I can't sleep. Got a bit of shoulder pain. You know, I'm really anxious, whatever. And they get the, the medical marijuana card. And off they go. And they end up creating that system that then, yes, in a lot of ways, ultimately led to the legalized model or the first incarnations that we're seeing of it in America so far. But it also then, it created that, that divide that then mm. somehow you're only a medical patient if you identify as one. So I've known a lot of people that have consumed cannabis and then have kind of air quotes grown up, you know, gone to get married and get on with their lives. And all of a sudden are diagnosed with a life-changing condition that is something that will have been there previous, but their so-called recreational or adult consumption of it was mitigating yeah, it. It was, a, so, yeah. It was a, yeah, so there's, there is this issue of identification of it because there's an argument going on within industry of going, well, all cannabis is, is medical if it all has an impact on and a supplementary effect on your endocannabinoid system being the largest regulatory system in the body and affecting all of these other peripheral pathways uh, and systems, then technically yes. But then if that means that everybody that ever wants to consume cannabis at all has to go down the medical route, it means that basically that narrative says that only one can exist. I say the hybridization needs to occur here. And so actually grow everything, as I've said, to that pharmaceutical grade, grow everything to that medical grade and allow it so you self-identify. So if you want to self-identify as an adult consumer, you pay more through a tax mechanism. If you want to cultivate at home, you're left alone to it unless you then want to access the commercial market. Then you're regulated, you're pushed through a rigorous system to make sure that your product is up to those standards. Otherwise, it can't compete on the scale. You should then be allowed a gift economy and to be able to pass amongst friends, et cetera, and create little collectives. But then as soon as, again, the money is brought into it, then you have to address the system. And mm. I think that then doing something like that means you get the data back from the millions of other people that are not going to identify as a medical consumer. They're still going to be like, well, so how did you find this? How is this? How is this affecting? You can then study them retrospectively, the data sets, and go, actually, the populations of people who identified in this one region as consuming these particular varieties of Kush didn't have this compared to the national average. The people who then could, and again, it's the the accruing of data. Data is more valuable than gold at this point in our history. And if we can put it to good use, then it it can be invaluable. And I think that whether a person identifies or we discretionarily put them as a recreational medical user, whatever, is almost irrelevant. The data that's still created is still true if we figure out the, the ways to utilize it openly, honestly, transparently. Yeah, this, um, I think with the regulation is the costs as well. So licensed producers at the moment for GMP standards. Um, so again, you've got GMP facilities, you've then got GMP products. So there is a difference. You know, there's a lot of the 
oils coming out or uh, imported into the UK aren't necessarily GMP products. They're, they're made in the GMP facility, but they're not actual GMP um, product. So, and the costs, you know, if you're going to grow large, well, it depends on what size the farm's going to be, but the costs associated with that. So if we're looking at regulation, it's looking at subsidized costs and licensing all of that needs to be looked at in the uk specifically because at the moment it's astronomical funding mm -hmm. needed and you know it's the um this is why we're all seeing investment um seminars and stuff all to do with medical cannabis and floating on the stock exchange and stuff like that because at the moment the amount of money needed to be invested is, is huge um and then we're not talking huge farms either so it's um yeah it's a uh, there needs to be lots of thought about various different things to yeah move us all forward. Yeah, yeah. There's a hell of a lot for uh, my listeners to mull over from this conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose uh, only really a couple more questions I'll keep, I'll keep for us. Yeah, go for it. Uh, um, sort of, so is, is Charlie responding sort of well to sort of the, the, new, the new product? And you, you said before, um, obviously he's got, other um sort of disabilities you said he's, he's sort of non-verbal mm. you touched on this before it's something that tanine touched on as well um in her podcast actually i think lisa as well maybe quite a few probably majority of them have this idea that you, you did before as well that if i'm kind of if i'm not around and like what happens obviously he's still incredibly young at this point so i would hope that by his time of turning 18 systems are in place that assure that this is a lifelong medication. It, it mm. needs to be ring fenced from the, the politicizing of this or from anything else. It needs to just, that works, put it over there. We don't need another conversation on it, frankly. But yeah. so then do, do, do you, do you, I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to ask this in a way that you don't just go, yes, I worry, but do you worry about sort of the, the future of that? Yeah, no. Yeah. It's yeah, all the time. It's something that's always in the kind of the back of your mind is, you're probably not really aware of it so much, but it is, it's the unknown. You know, Charlie, at the moment, Charlie can't walk and he's non-verbal and he has what's called global development today. So every part of his development is impacted. So though he's four years old, he's that of the development age of probably a one-year-old. So, and his development is very, very slow. Now it has moved rest quite, quite well and as quickly, but in respect to you know we've just had covid so as parents you know during lockdown and things like that that intervention and you know speech and language and physiotherapy and all these other interventions that he has weren't happening so he, he just plateaued and he was just stuck you know but since he started school you know they see i posted a video on instagram he started um he's sitting upright and really stable and he started drinking from his milk bottle and he's holding it up. And to anyone else, that's, what, what's that? But to us, that was huge. It was like, actually, yeah. he's got some independence here. And he grabbed it. And he wanted to do that. Mm. And brushing his teeth as well. So we brush, you know, we brush his teeth for him. We then grabbed the toothbrush and he's trying to mimic. It was all, you know, he pokes himself in the eye and stuff like that. But it's that independence. He's starting to learn and he's recognizing and, you know, he's then making them actions himself. So um, actually doing that. It's a bit dodgy, isn't it, on camera? Um, that, was, that was a toothbrush. Uh, but, um, I'm going to cut yeah, that into a gift. It's going to ruin your life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's just things like that that for us are huge, and we call them inch stones, and, you know, it's that slight progression. But what we've also found is, um, so back in February 20, 
19, um, when we met with Matt, Matt Hancock at the Parliament, um, he commissioned uh, a review into access to cannabis back then, prescribed cannabis. And from that formed ResCAS, which is the Refractory Epilepsy Specialist Clinical Service or something like that it's called. And we referred Charlie to them. Now, our impression was that they were there to make a decision on whether cannabis was helpful for Charlie. Um, they didn't even look at the cannabis. They just said, no, we're not here for that. But what we do recommend are these pharmaceuticals, two of which Charlie had already been on and failed. They then opted for two that we hadn't tried before. So we're like, well, actually, we are, you know, we can't just rule out and not try them. We need to be, you know, I feel we have a responsibility for Charlie to, you know, they could help. So... Uh, we tried what's called lecosamide and, you know, as a, we slowly titrated up on the dose. And because it's so slow and, you know, you're with him day to day, you start to, you don't recognise maybe that he's not doing so much and that he's starting to get more lethargic. And so only really when we started weaning off it, because we got to a point where it's actually they're not helping his seizures, nothing's changed. There's another pharmaceutical. We don't want him on all these pharmaceuticals. Um, so the, the three that he's on, two of them, he's sub-therapeutic. Lecosamide was the only one at therapeutic level, and he's cannabis. So we're now technically sub-therapeutic on all these anti-epileptics, and it's only cannabis that's at a therapeutic level. Um, but as we weaned off, all of a sudden, he started coming back alive again, and he started being more cheery, and his balance improved, and he started doing all these other, you know, these other little bits and pieces. And we're like, actually, lecosamide was really impacting him. We hadn't really noticed it because... Mm-hmm. You know, it's just little little bits. But, yeah, it has. So, you know, we're quite happy that we've now we, – we have to do it slowly because it does cause some seizures each time we drop. But um, so, we, you know, we give them a bit of time to recover. But all things like that you do worry about in the future, you know, for cannabis is, you know, I feel he's always going to need it. And that's one medicine that has really, really helped him. And he will build tolerance and we will need to be looking at other cultivars and, you know, looking at – you know, as parents, understanding it better. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it is something that we do. You don't worry about it every day, but, you know, you know, as the years roll by, you do start thinking about it more often. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I do sincerely, sincerely hope that by the time it rolls around that he's 18, that we've got our shit together. <laughs> we must. Yeah, we must. Well, Either that or I'll be sat here on, like, episodes... <laughs> I'm trying, trying to pull that like 7,600 and something going well folk any day now any <laughs> day now but it's, um, you've got to think about families as well where their children do turn 18 they then go to social services the parents lose that parental responsibility that legal responsibility mm-hmm. and so when medical cannabis comes along you know there's families that we know really well within Medcan and their children have turned 18 or in their early 20s it's actually down to the social services whether that child is prescribed medical cannabis. So the parents... That would would be the same social services that threaten to take kids away from households whose parents consume cannabis. Yeah, exactly. So um, so parents are now fighting for that legal, um, which you can do through courts, but they're fighting to keep that legal um, say over their own child. So, again, that's something me and Ali... We weren't even. We hadn't even considered that. It wasn't anything we'd thought about. Mm-hmm. But now we're in contact with these parents that are oh, actually going through that right now. Well, actually, we'll start. Yeah, we will do that when he's sixteen and start getting the ball rolling. And you know, we need to start saving the money to 
have that legal challenge then. Um, is is there not, nothing can be done in, in guardianship? In, in I don't know, it's, it's very complex, but it's, it's all yeah. about guardianship. But yeah, it's, it's you lose that. Technically, you're not the guardian when they turn 18, so. That, yeah, yeah, and exactly that. That is a situation that I suppose is going to become far more prevalent because as we discussed, as you discussed before, there's about 20,000 sort of mm. kids with this refractory epilepsy that once we truly understand this, if we can get to that next level of science, as you were discussing before, how the individual minor cannabinoids and terpenes interact um, with different neurochemicals and how that affects uh, our seizure outcome. Once we get a grip on that, it's going to go through the roof. And uh, I think, yeah. this, this stand- I think this- we're, we're many, you know, Israel are leading on that and genetics and Mac and genetics and some of our profiles and stuff. UK will never get to the point where Israel are at the moment, not for many, many years. I doubt in our children's lifetime, maybe not even our lifetime. So I think for the moment is let's look at the real world evidence. Let's look, you know, the strength of that. Let's get it all collected and put together. Mm-hmm. And although we don't fully understand everything behind the scenes in the endocannabinoid system and how it all works, I think we are at a point where we can actually say, well, it does work. I know we don't fully understand it, but we know enough. Um, and we know it is safe. We know that it's very effective and it's actually changing these children's and adults' lives. So let's you know, change guidance and start looking at the strength of this evidence and allow population-wide to these 20,000 children. Um, mm-hmm. That's what we're asking for at the moment is for NICE to start accepting this and looking at it, you know, but that's not easy. Um, and yeah, it's a huge challenge for anyone to undertake. So, which, you know, there's a massive still a massive hurdle to overcome you then got the bpna as well and in their views um which again is a massive challenge in that no clinicians are prescribing whilst bpa have this strangleholds over clinicians it's um it's preventing the prescribing it's preventing that evidence being built yeah well, I think we've discovered and discussed enough hurdles that are in opposition but i think <laughs> uh you you've shown your 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 prowess here, your your passion and your sort of commitment to this. So hats off to you, man, and thank you for for making the time for this. I have one final, one final question for you, uh, which I ask all my guests, and that is, uh, what does the future hold for you? What me personally, or yeah, you personally, or like family wise, and just yeah, no idea. Uh, <laughs> so I work in in IT. Um, that's been my career. Um, I'm an IT manager at high school. Um, is there a place for me in the medical cannabis sector or I don't know. Um, I have got, um, qualifications in horticulture as well. Um, so I do know growing, um, but yeah, who knows? Well, I don't know. Uh, My priority at the moment is Charlie and his access. And obviously through him is Medcan and the flight for population wide access. That's, you know, if that leads for me personally somewhere, great. But if not, my heart and passion is for that, that population wide access. Brilliant, brilliant. I'll, uh, I'll include all links below to sort of Medcan. Are there any important other links uh, that I can include about sort of uh, the particular type of epilepsy the uh, son has, for example? Uh, yeah, there's a UK Infantile Spasms Trust which is a UK uh, um, charity, which obviously is for that, and Lennox Gastron syndrome as well. 
Um, but also our fundraising page. So what we're trying to do at the moment is, and again, it's a different perspective, is families that are funding private prescriptions, they are going, you know, we touched upon mental health support earlier. So within the NHS, you know, when, you know, my, myself and Ali were sat in the corridor, we were handed a leaflet. And in that leaflet, it basically talked about Charlie's condition. And it said in there that a large proportion will not make it till 10 years old. They'll die of a, of a seizure. And when you read that, and it's, you know, it's your firstborn, and you're just stuck in a hospital corridor, you know, that has a massive... You know, you have the trauma and, you know, Hannah talks a lot about her mental health. And there's lots of parents that are suffering with trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome, et cetera, anxiety and depression. And, and we really want to help with the mental health. And because parents aren't able to afford to get, you know, treatment if they want that, um, it's, you know, we're trying to support families in that way and the siblings and also, you know, specialist equipment and bits and pieces like that. So we're trying to raise funding for them to apply for, for grants and help in different ways other than, you know, there's other charities that are helping with uh, funding the actual cannabis prescription. We want to help in other ways. We want to, you know, try and help with mental health support and yeah. And, and specialist equipment, holidays, respite, all these things that are really, really important to families, but yeah, allow them to apply for grants and then, um, yeah, for however they feel that it helped them. Excellent, excellent, man. Uh, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, by all means, I'll grab the links off you and we'll include them in the uh, bio and description below. Cool. So, yeah, uh, thank you very much, Matt. It has been a pleasure. Uh, no, thanks for having me. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you at a UK event sometime soon. And best of luck with the fight, man. You've got quite an uphill battle, but <laughs> you've got your head on your shoulders, sir. You seem like you know what you're doing. Well, the support from Hannah and Callie as well, you know, we're a team it's not individual efforts it's well individually we are doing bits but as a team it's, it's medcan and, and obviously the families as well they have an input and um yeah so it's not just me it's there's lots of them there's ah. lots of collaborative approach and and you're humble too brother i like <laughs> it i like it um well yeah pleasure as i said pleasure uh thank you folks for making it through yet another episode as we approach uh, very quickly the year anniversary of this podcast so to celebrate please do like share subscribe and check us out on patreon at patreon.com forward slash a simple life where you can help keep the lights on at this little project of mine uh for less than a cup of coffee and a sandwich a week we have the higher tiers but i know that times are tough so by all means if you've got a couple of extra quid down the back of the sofa Chuck it over this way. I'll uh, really appreciate it. Check us out on all social media platforms at The Simple Life. I've been Simba. A wonderful guest today has been Matt. Yeah, take care of yourselves. Be nice to each other. Go learn some stuff. Peace. <laughs>